Good morning. So glad you're here. Uh, we are in a we're in Advent, which I don't know. When I kind of mark the ten years we've been doing this church thing, this is one of my favorite times of year um, to do church with you. So. Um, one thing that we do in this church, if you've been around a long time, you know this for sure. If you're new, you maybe have already experienced this, but one of the things that we have sort of as this fundamental foundation of who we are and how we serve the city is the grill out that we do downtown for the homeless community. Um, it was the first thing we ever did, and we've never stopped. And it's just sort of this flagship work of the church here. Um, and so we, you know, I think most everybody, has everybody been to this at some point? It's really powerful. And when we first started, um, early in the life of the church, uh, I remember kind of leading my kids, trying to teach them too, like, this is a big deal, you guys. This is, um, this is what service looks like on the ground. This is where it's kind of gritty. Um, this is where we're going to find it kind of rise up in the margins. And I'm like, you have a role to play, and it's important that you're here. And your presence um, in this space is just as important as anybody else's. And you bring joy here, and, and we need you in this service. So this is like me, like, rallying the troops before every grill out, really, just this pep talk of, like, service and compassion. And so um, the kids generally fall in lockstep, and everybody has a job. Everybody's handing out water. Somebody's doing mayonnaise, or tons of mayonnaise, as we know. More mayonnaise. More is more on mayonnaise on the grill out. But um, uh, I guess uh, seven years ago, when Amy Melsa sent me this picture, she took it and she reminded me of it. Um, I just kind of want to show you a snapshot of one of our grill outs. And I think you'll notice in the middle of the picture is my son, Caleb. That's Caleb. <laughs> Do you see him sprawled on the ground? For reasons I can't explain to you, he's wearing a helmet. I don't know what to say. I'm not sure what that is. Um, but this is how he felt about the whole situation, despite my rah-rah cheerleading, like, pep talk on the way there. And I remember asking Caleb when he was at this age, he's a sophomore in high school now, but, um, buddy, what's the deal here? And he's just like, I just want this to be over. <laughs> so, like, what I'm trying to tell you, besides the fact that classic pastor's kid, um, is... Sometimes in this season, we want some things to be over. That's what Advent marks in a lot of ways, craving the end. And in fact, this week, all around the world, the focus of this week of Advent is getting ready for the end to come. That's what we're talking about. That's where our scriptures are going to lead us. So during this week of Advent, we think about endings. So in real time in Scripture, as we sort of go through the three different passages, we'll learn from a past ending, we will learn from a present ending as it was written, and then we'll learn from a future ending. So our three readings this morning mark the end of exile, the end of waiting for Jesus, and then ultimately the end of this current realm. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to talk about the first one. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah 40. Um, and this is when we look backward, we learn from the story of God, these enormous markers within his people, um, and we see a really important ending. Um, let me read this to you. It's Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I say, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. So you who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here's your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So here's what's happening here. This is the end of a very long exile. So the second half of Isaiah, starting with this chapter, starting with chapter 40 and on to the end of 66, speaks to a people, to the people of God, who were despairing at the loss of their God because they had been in bondage for 70 years. Um, This felt like a loss of God, obviously, because the relationship with him had always presumed a very um, intimate relationship with the land. Land equals God's favor. And so this was actually written in advance of their captivity because they would become Babylonian captives for 70 years after this was penned, and these words would ultimately be a comfort to them. So they were leading up to that captivity. They were warned, and they were warned, and they were warned by the prophets against idolatry, saying this will ultimately end up in your bondage. Listen, listen, and heed our words, and yet they did not. And so under evil leader after evil leader, they abandoned their faith, and they did end up suffering in exile for generations. Um, It's interesting when I think back to that time for Israel, because certainly the sins of the first generation and those who came before them began their captivity. But frankly, it was felt for the next three or four or even five um, generations as children were born into exile, right? That was the only life they ever knew. And so what we find out at the very beginning of of, of chapter 40 is that God says, it's enough. It's enough. Your hard service is over. It's time for this to end. It's time to go home. And we see God turning the corner back into hope. So I think about this Advent as we look backwards to, a, to the first ending we're going to discuss. Um, I bet that some of us are waiting for the end of our exile too. This feels familiar to probably a lot of us in this room. Maybe we have also felt a loss of God um, that we are somehow displaced from his people or maybe his church or even his own presence. Um, it could be like this original story that our own sin, our own selfishness caused our displacement. It could be. Romans 6 puts it pretty frankly that the wages of sin is death. 
So they're not min- he's, Paul was not mincing words there for us because sometimes our choices do indeed leave this wake of death behind them, right? Our relationships sometimes die. Our spirits feel like they're dying. Our clean conscience, um, our good standing, sometimes our reputation, um, our sense of proximity to Jesus. And I think that some of us might finally like wake up to the consequences of our own sin, our own selfishness, our own choices, and find out that we are in freaking Babylon. Like, how did this happen, right? How did this happen? How did I get here? Some of us, still in this story thread, may be still staggering under the weight of the sins of our parents. Um, Their choices, maybe, um, took them and the family far from God. Could be that. And we've yet to find our own way back as grown-ups. Um, this is not a hard reach. Children of, of alcoholics or um, of abuse, be it physical or emotional or spiritual um, abuse. Children who were raised in dysfunction. Um, this is a really common story, and if it's yours, you're, I promise you you're not alone, certainly not in this room. Um, so it may be that it's not that our choices um, placed us so far outside of the camp but choices made on our behalf. And we don't even know how to get to the promised land because we never lived there in the first place, right? It may be that we feel like spiritual refugees. Golly, this feels true to me this year. We feel displaced. We feel disoriented. We're wondering where home is, right? What is home? That our spiritual home got confusing recently, that maybe the spiritual home that you built originally is now in ashes, or maybe you don't recognize it anymore, that it used to be one thing and now it's something else and you don't get it anymore. You don't get the language. You don't get the rules. You don't get the shifting allegiances. Um, Maybe you were sent away uh, because you didn't fit the template anymore. That could be it. Um, As all refugees, sometimes we are in exile because home is unsafe right? Um, so whatever your exile looks like, this, this could be the place where you find a rung on the ladder to grab on to the story of Advent. I, I feel like in so many ways, as we're going to kind of walk through the three other, or the three total sort of exile stories, this is the one that I identify with the most this year. I feel like I am in deep and surprising celebration of a return from exile, how I feel. Last year at this time, those of you who were here, it was just as if the ground was just falling out from under their feet last year. And I didn't know if I'd ever find a home again, if any of us would. I didn't know what home was, if I'd ever be welcomed back. Um, I I felt that sting of banishment last year. And so to be home, to be home with the people that I love, um, to find out that um, God still reigns, and we still have a place in his kingdom, and the table is wider than we were told, right? And we're all still welcome at it, and, and people who say we're not, they're not in charge. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I ain't sorry. <laughs> I'm not sorry. Um, I'm returning from exile this year, and it feels so good. It feels like a homecoming. The home looks a little different. I'm discovering that the home I'm going to is a bit more in the wilderness, than inside the city gates, and I'm not sad about it. It's beautiful out there. T- turns out there's a lot of us out there. 
there's, it's quite populated out with the wild, uh, like, tambourine shakers. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I guess that's where I belong. So I think the question in, in the story of exile is how do we get home? How do we get home? Well, uh, we've got a pretty good pathway right here. Um, and this is what we learn from Isaiah. Where am I? I can't find my verse. Oh, it's in 60. I'm sorry. Go forward just a minute. This is what Isaiah tells us to do. Okay, I don't have my verse. But you know what he says? I know it in my head. He says, um, clear path. He says, clear path. Um, Make the mountains low. Make the valleys high. Whatever rubble is blocking your way home, grab a shovel. That's essentially what we learn. So maybe you need to take a hard look at the rubble between where you're at and home and begin to prepare the way. So if that, I don't know what that looks like for you. It it might look like um, confession. Um, Sin took the Israelites far from home in the the first place. It might look like repentance. It might be grabbing the the shovel of repentance and say, "I, I don't want this here anymore. Um, it might look like forgiveness for you, maybe asking forgiveness or giving it. I'm not sure which way. Uh, maybe it looks like counseling. Maybe that's part of your rubble, and it's time to finally grab a shovel and do the work. Honesty. It might look like community. It might look like prayer. Clear a path. Clear a path. We are not without the tools to find our way back to God. He gave us everything we need. I like this crowd today. This is fun. I like what's happening. You know what? Angie started this, didn't she? She did. She started this. I like call and response. I'm here for it. Okay. So it might be, it might be that this Advent is waiting for the end of our exile. Moving forward in the Advent readings, in Mark, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. In Mark, we find out that the wait for Jesus is over. So we fast forward in the story of God's people, and this is what we read starting in in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's written in Isaiah the prophet, and these are the exact verses that we just read. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Mark here picks up the tale of that Isaiah passage and introduces John the Baptist, who introduces Jesus, right? I think as we consider this story and how this might um, how we might identify even more deeply with the good news that it is just on this, just at a, at a plain reading, is to consider how long Israel had waited for this Messiah. 
Because um, that is what Advent is. It is a wait. And so it really behooves us to look backwards and consider their wait for Jesus. You know, we first start reading of a coming Savior um, in the very beginning of the written word. The absolute very beginning, we start seeing these threads of promise of a Messiah, um, prophecy about Jesus going back to Abraham, and then Moses, and then the Psalms, and literally every single prophet, obviously. There was constant, constant messianic promises, and the die was cast very, very early in the Old Testament. We see back at the beginning of the Exodus story, we see the sacrificial lamb right? We see the blood of the lamb and Passover. It's all being laid out so early, this promise, laid out from the beginning. The Psalms are absolutely chock full of messianic promises, and the prophets were downright explicit in preparing way for Jesus. In fact, in Isaiah 7, he said, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. This is not a veiled mystery, this was coming, and it was clear. And so even after the exile, all the way up to the close of the Old Testament, the prophets stayed the course on this messaging. In fact, Zechariah said, God's branch is still to be sent. So what I'm saying is, by the time that Jesus came, absolutely every single Israelite knew that the Messiah would specifically be of David's line, they knew he would be virgin-born in Bethlehem. They knew he would be introduced by a strange prophet like Elijah. Um, they knew he was going to be presented to his people riding a donkey. All of that was laid out in clear terms. So Jesus didn't just hit the scene out of left field. Um, there was this constant rise and fall of messianic hope in the people of God for literally over 2,000 years. 2,000 years. And I'm proud of them because Israel hung on, man. They hung on to that through captivity. They hung on to it through the wilderness and war and genocide and bondage and evil leadership that seemed to have no end and Roman occupation, and they hung on. So it was a long wait and there was a lot of suffering during that anticipation. And I think about them a lot. I wonder, um, they, they had to have wondered, right, if their Messiah was ever going to come. Was he ever going to come? And if, if they were fools for hoping. Um, because if he was a savior, like their scriptures told them over and over, then there had been countless times they needed one already, Right? So at this moment, after a very, very long delay, John the Baptist says, the wait is over, and Jesus is here. I wonder, too, this Advent, if some of us are not waiting for Jesus to show up. Maybe this is the piece of the story that makes the most sense to our hearts this year. Maybe you've endured more than you ever thought possible, and... You're longing for the end of your suffering. We need Jesus to come too and make everything new. So it's funny because like Israel, we have our scriptures. We can read very plainly that Jesus is a healer, right? That he is a redeemer, that he is good, that he is powerful. And so I can identify with the Israelites who 
look back at their history. Think, I think about them like in Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was under siege, 600 years before Jesus came, when they were surrounded by 18 months and they starved inside the broken down city walls. Don't you just know? They thought, where's our Savior? Like, why not now? Why isn't this the moment he comes? Why is he delayed here in the middle of suffering this grave and loss this profound? Why not now? So maybe we understand deeply the pain of waiting for Jesus to redeem our pain. The agony of wondering when, why not now? So maybe Advent for you this year looks like holding very tight to hope before it's realized. Maybe that's your journey um, this December, believing that Jesus will show up because he promised to. And that's the end of the story, even if the timing feels very obscured, obscured right now. So listen, it's like this. If Jesus decided to come in a manger, born to the poor, and announced to shepherds, if that's the way he chose to do it, then you better believe that you can trust that he will never stop showing up. Never. Yeah. He is here to stay for the good of his people and let the manger be our lesson. So Advent reminds us to, to wait well. I think that's one of the messages, to wait well, to be found faithful and watching and believing for resurrection. No matter how broken something is in your life, in your marriage, in your home, in your heart, at this minute. I say this every year during Advent teaching, and I'm just sorry because it's just too crucial, but Advent reminds us too that most of the Israelites, they missed Jesus. They missed his first coming because they were looking for him in the bright, shiny lights of power and politics and revolution. But Jesus came as the light of the world, and light was made for darkness, but nobody was looking there. Nobody was looking in the darkness. No one was looking for a manger. They were looking for a throne. So don't miss this. Um, it's not that most of Israel wasn't looking for him. We can't lay that accusation at their feet fairly. They were all looking for him every last one of them. It's just that they didn't recognize the way he came. That's what they missed. So it's not in your, it's, it's actually in your dark night of the soul, if that's where you're at this year, that the light of the world can be most clearly seen. So seek him. Look for him. If you do not know what else to do, ask for eyes to see. Say, give me eyes to see you. Let, your, let Jesus direct your soul's attention to the manger part of your story, not the palace part. Let him turn your eyes to where he lives, to where he reigns, because he is there. He just might not be found in the um, bright, shiny light of expectation, but in this very humble and gritty place we maybe didn't bargain for. That's how he came the first time. So finally, last, 
um, as we get ready for endings this week in Advent, Peter turns our eyes ahead. Um, and he reminds us that this broken world, as we know it, is going to end. And God will bring forth a new heaven and a new earth. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm actually going to read this in a different translation. I think I have it on the screen, and I don't have it in my notes, so I'm going to have to come up here and read it. Oh, gosh, it's so hard to see. It's so weird to be old. Okay, I'm going to read this to you. This is out of the, the New Life translation, and I just really love the way it reads. Um, this is what Peter tells us on this third wait. First of all, I want you to know that in the last days, men will laugh at the truth. They'll follow their own sinful desires, and they'll say, he promised to come again. Where is he? Since our early fathers died, everything is the same from the beginning of the world. And he goes on, dear friends, remember this one thing. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. The Lord is not slow about keeping his promise, as some people think. He's waiting for you. The Lord does not want any person to be punished forever. He wants all people to be sorry for their sins and turn from them. The day of the Lord will come as a robber comes. The heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The sun and moon and stars will burn up, and the earth and all that is in it will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, you should think about the kind of life you're living. It should be holy and godlike. You should look for the day of God to come. You should do what you can to make it come soon. At that time, the heavens will be destroyed by fire, and the sun and moon and stars will melt away with much heat. We are looking for what God has promised, which are new heavens and a new earth. Only what is right and good will be there. So, dear friends, since you are waiting for these things to happen, do all you can do to be found by him in peace. Be clean and free from sin. You can be sure the long waiting of our Lord is part of his plan to save men from the punishment of sin. So Peter wrote this about 30 years after Jesus rose from the grave. You know, a lot of the apostles and most of the new disciples believed that Jesus would come back in their lifetime. That was their understanding. Um, frankly, basically, pretty sure every single generation since Jesus' generation has thought Jesus was coming back during their lifetime, right? <laughs> I don't know if any of you grew up like I did, but does anybody in here remember that terrifying book that came out called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Come Back in 1988? Y'all, people like sold the farm. You know what I mean? It was, and talk about coming a thief in the night. Did anybody see the Thief in the Night movie? I am still traumatized. I have deep, deep trauma from that 70s B movie. Um, so as we read this passage in, in 2 Peter, there's so much there. I realize there's a lot of scripture. And frankly, there are a lot of ideas and interpretations and even guesses on what this passage actually means, which of it is symbolic, which of it is literal, um, how is it all going to actually shake out um, in real time. And I'm not sure we positively know, but I think it does get at the heart of where I suspect many of us are still at today, which is this. We are weary of this world, and we are longing for the world in which, according to Scripture, only what is right and good will be there. 
Didn't that just sound like a dream? Just a dream. I was studying this week, and I came across a, a teaching by the United Methodist Church um, that they put sort of out on their website, and um, they've, they've just held it faithfully to Advent for so long, and they have so much to teach. And, um, and I was reading through some of this teaching, and, I, and this is what they sort of suggested, was that um, this specifically, in this idea of when are you coming, Jesus? How long do we have to endure this broken down, unholy world? Um, is that this is where Advent puts Christmas in its proper place. Not just like as a trendy activity calendar for our kids, right? Or as I like to call it, like an opportunity for mother shame. Because um, I usually got to like day 14 and just couldn't keep it up. Um, it's not just a clever sermon series. But Advent is literally nothing less than the complete disruptive inbreaking of the God who, through the birth of Jesus, is making all things new. That's what it is. To that extreme, full measure, specifically in Advent. And this gives me peace. It gives me comfort. We see how God's reign marks the breakdown and end of every other reign, right? So um, what Jesus started with his kingdom in opposition to the systems of the day, that will be the final word. It is going to be the final word because every human reign since the beginning of time has been disordered and sinful and full of injustice and oppression. And all those reigns, have been disproportionately abusive toward people on the margins, right? Toward the poor, toward the powerless, toward the oppressed. And so Advent tunes us to their voices. And it reminds us that the good news that we crave becomes good news for all only in their redemption. So Advent at its core assures us that all these reigns of men that have kept people silenced and suffering for their own benefit, for their own advantage, that reign, all those reigns, only has one future, which is utter destruction and replacement by God's reign. That is the end game here. I think about it is the fullness of the magnificent, right, of Mary's whole liberation song. So Advent's a comfort to me this year in a way that it really never has been, especially regarding this sort of disordered, sinful human reign. This year has been so sad and discouraging. I don't recognize, I don't recognize our culture right now. I know a lot of us feel it, this sort of, um, this fear-based, polarized um, culture of fury and white supremacy and nationalism. It's just been devastating this year, you guys. The evangelical endorsement of immorality and abuse in exchange for power, I'm heartbroken. It's broken my heart. Uh, what are we watching? The resurgence of KKK and these hate groups that are now living out boldly? It's happening. I can't tell you how much it just 
breaks me to watch right now this doubling down on already marginalized people, on women, on people of color, on Muslims, on the poor, on immigrants, on refugees. And it isn't just here. This isn't just my beef with our current leadership. It's everywhere. This, the scourge of slavery right now ravages, ravages, ravages our world to this living day. And there's evil leaders, it feels like just everywhere, who are harming their people, exploiting their people. This unending abuse of women and girls I read yesterday that eight men, eight men, own as much wealth as the bottom half of humanity. It's not okay, this unequal system. So I feel the weight of this. I feel the weight of that reign, that reign that prioritizes certain people at the expense of everybody else. And I'm hungry for the end of it. So I've never craved the kingdom of Jesus more, ever. And Advent, you guys, it reassures us and it reminds us that that end is coming. It is. We are on the right side of this thing. So wrapping up here, Peter gives us very clear instruction on what to do with this painful weight, this one specifically. He says, Do everything you can do to be found clean and at peace. Everything you can do. So may we be found faithful in our weight, even as we wish with all of our hearts for things to be beautiful and holy and good again, right? We've got to have the language of justice and kindness and community in our mouths. Let's be found like that. We've got to stretch out our arms to our neighbors and refuse to live by this me and mine philosophy we're getting told to live by every single day. But instead, we're going to say, not just me and mine, you and yours, them and theirs, because Jesus came to that manger and made this situation a we. In fact, we were invited into a story that we did not have access to until he came. This is a we, right? Peter said, make every effort to be found by God in peace, which does not necessarily mean that we aren't sad, that we aren't confused, that we aren't further away from this thing than we want to be. But my greatest hope is that if Jesus came back this afternoon, he would find a people whose lives were marked by peace, not power, whose lives were marked by clean hands, not filthy corruption, marked by goodness, by advocacy, by tenderness, a people trying to live in the kingdom of Jesus. So whether we're waiting for the end of an exile or waiting for Jesus to show up in our suffering or waiting for this gross world to be made new, Advent invites us back to the manger, the beginning of the end, indeed the end we've all um, been craving because in Jesus is where all things began and ultimately all things will end. And they will end in glory and they will end in resurrection and they will end in goodness 
And the thing is, the scriptures tell us, in the end, everything will be right. Everything. So if everything isn't right yet, then it's just not the end. Right? Let's close with this. Until then, while we wait, the Bible tells us to clear a path, do the work, ask for eyes to see Jesus where he is actually showing up in our story, not just where we expected him to, and literally do everything in our power to be a clean person of peace. My favorite lyrics that we sing in this church a lot is the one that says, I can see a light that is coming for the heart that holds on. There will be an end to these troubles. But until that day comes, still I will praise you.